Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now: michael at lmfm.ie. Monday the 22nd of October with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. This week we go to the polls to vote on who will be the next President of Ireland. The closing days of the campaign might make this otherwise dull affair a little bit more interesting than it's been so far and they might not. The lacklustre campaign may result in a low turnout especially since the opinion polls suggest the contest was over before it began with Michael D. Higgins set for a landslide victory. The timing of the poll is curious too in that some people might be more interested in getting away for the long weekend than exercising their democratic right. If you do vote on Friday, however, you'll also have uh, the opportunity to vote in a referendum to amend the Constitution in order to remove the word blasphemy. Sean Defoe, our political correspondent, is on the line and uh, we're far from uh, an exciting campaign on either front, aren't we, Sean? Michael, can you not feel the excitement? It's final week in the polling. It's going to be fantastic. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm just buzzing with the excitement. Are you being facetious or is it that uh, you're one of uh, these nerds who are so uh, interested in politics that this even has you excited? Uh, I think I probably do fall into the political nerd category, but uh, no, it has been pretty dull as far as election campaigns go, and particularly compared with the one in 2011 when it was all excitement all the mm. time. So it has been pretty lacklustre. Uh, Peter Casey's comments last week kind of gave a bit of a, a bit of a stir and a bit of excitement up to the race, but certainly the battery referendum was entirely flown under the radar. There's lots of people who I think don't even know it's happening, uh, certainly talking to to friends around the place over the weekend. They're like, what, what's that? What are we voting on and why? And uh, the presidential election, I mean, it looks a certainty, you know, and you could nearly put your house in it at this stage. Michael D is going to win. So it hasn't exactly caught the imagination yet. All right. Tell us uh, about the referendum then, uh, because whenever we change uh, the constitution, if that's what people choose to do, it is uh, an important thing. It has implications in terms of uh, the laws of the land. And we're to remove the word blasphemous from the constitution. Yeah, so essentially what this is about is removing the criminal offence of blasphemy from Irish law and by removing the reference in the Constitution. The blasphemy is essentially the publication of blasphemous or seditious material, which could be deemed offensive by any number of religions uh, across the country. And at the moment, it is punishable by criminal offence to a maximum fine of €25,000. Now, it's never actually been successfully prosecuted. The most recent high-profile case was in relation to Stephen Fry when he uh, was on Gay Burn show and made a number of comments about God. He was asked what he would say to God at the pearly gates if he met him there and he said, say, what, you know, what are you doing? Why have you created so much uh, 
hunger and, and torment in the world for people and uh, that drew a lot of a lot of complaints and there was one I think in Ennis and Clare one man referenced it to the Guardian and then they had to investigate but it was never pursued and never followed up on so it actually hasn't ever been prosecuted in the state and now the government is looking to remove it for a number of reasons one they feel it's kind of it's outdated that mm. it's the law from the past with all the reference to religion it's incredibly hard to prove a case of it helps why it hasn't been prosecuted because of course what one person might deem to be blasphemous another person might deem to be absolutely fine and it wouldn't offend their sensibilities but the government is also arguing that Ireland is now being used as an example by other states, uh, particularly in the, the Middle East of the world, where blasphemy is also an offence, but it's more punishable. For example, it could be punishable by imprisonment or even by death in some places. And they have been defending their blasphemy laws there by saying, well, look, Ireland has one. You know, this Western country, this beacon mm. of Europe, has a blasphemy law as well. So that's a couple of the reasons behind it. At the moment, it looks fairly like it's going to pass the opinion polls that have been done. And it hasn't been a huge amount because it's just dropped off the radar news-wise. But the opinion polls certainly suggest it will probably pass. All right. Far more uh, punishable elsewhere than here because uh, the fine here is €25,000. At least that's the maximum fine if a case was to be taken against you and you were found guilty of blasphemy. Uh, But in removing blasphemous from the Constitution, it doesn't change the law. Uh, The law is in place because the Constitution makes it something that should be punishable in accordance with law. But if we remove the word from the Constitution, it gives the legislators, the politicians, in other words, the chance to change the law or uh, eradicate that law. Yes, in a similar way to when people voted in the abortion referendum, what they were voting for was to remove the reference to the rights of the life of the unborn from the Constitution and then give legislators the power to go and create that law. And that's what we're seeing happening now as new legislation is coming through the doll and the Shannon. So it would be similar to that, that it would the reference would be removed from the Constitution and then new laws would have to be brought forward by the government to go through all that process in New Octus to, to change the, the criminal aspect of blasphemy. All right, and it really is only a very small change to the Constitution, which in itself is a fairly lengthy uh, document. Uh, and uh, blasphemous is a word that appears once in Article 46 one, uh, which has to do with the freedom of expression. Uh, and uh, the sentence that it's contained in reads, the publication or utterance of blasphemous, seditious or indecent matter is an offence which shall be punishable in accordance with the law. So if we remove the word blasphemous, that means uh, that it'll continue to be punishable by law uh, if your behaviour is found to be seditious or indecent. Yeah, and I think that's kind of back to... uh, There's a fine balance, I suppose, to be struck in in some sense in what you can and can't publish and what you can't put out there. I mean, if you were to remove all of it, the argument could probably be made that we could go on the radio and we could say Mm. whatever we like, say all sorts of indecent things, and there'd be no sort of incentive or punishment, even though there's also the BAI guidelines and etc. around that. But the the blasphemous aspect in particular is what they're looking at. They're looking at that separation, really, of uh, religion and state. That's something the government has been quite... Uh, vocal on in the last little while and it's why they're making these little amendments to the constitution in that respect but it is only the blasphemy side of it that we're actually going to be voting on on Friday. Right uh, and as I say it's in uh, the context of freedom of expression uh, I suppose uh, a little bit like blasphemy uh, you could subjectively conclude that something is indecent or not as uh, the case may be uh, I'm not sure uh, if it was blasphemous in 1850 when a redemptorist 
priest burnt a Bible because he inadvertently burnt this Bible, apparently. Uh, and uh, that, uh, I think, is uh, possibly the last case of blasphemy. Uh, but does this call into question or has there been any talk about these other words in the Constitution and as to whether they should be removed or not so that there is freedom of expression and free freedom of expression? No, not really. That's not, not something that has been on the radar for the government. They've gone after the, the blasphemous side, as I said, the future, you know, that separation of religion and state. And, mm. and all the, you know, these other uh, cases of, of expression and, you know, what is offensive, what's not offensive, that stuff is argued all the time and, you know, can argued again through libel cases and there's all sorts of different law that kind of looks after that. I think they felt that the blasphemous law in particular, given where Ireland has come since it was put into the Constitution originally, since that Constitution was written, as a largely Catholic document, I think it's fair to say, and what now the government is looking at is modernising it for an Ireland that doesn't hugely reflect those values anymore. Now they do, like there could be the argument against, for example, passing this referendum where you could say, well, if you move that reference to blasphemy, what protection is there for those who practice religion at all? That someone can go on the radio, can go mm. on the television or write something and say whatever they like about, you know, God or Allah or whoever it is, and there is no protection for those people who have a huge who have hugely strongly held views now of course that should be done through other legislation or through BAI guidelines through other things like that so there's the other side of the argument really that you uh, people are thinking this is another move away from the church this is another you know the state trying to intervene on people's rights to to have their views and have their views protected so there's kind of two sides to it there as well mm. Okay, I guess uh, a lot of it is subjective uh, as well uh, and uh, that, as you say, is probably why there hasn't been a a case of blasphemy. I suppose we were shamed to some degree uh, with uh, the Stephen Fry incident uh, on Gay Burns meaning of life uh, and uh, then there is this international dimension to it. Uh, What about the presidential campaign? Uh, It is the closing days of it uh, and to a large degree the challengers, the candidates challenging Michael D. Higgins have been looking uh, to, uh, I suppose, cast some doubt in the minds of people about uh, his oversight of uh, expenses and spending and that sort of thing. Uh, The latest question for the president has to do with use of the government jet. Yes, so this is in relation to an event Michael D. Higgins was doing in Belfast. He was giving a speech and he flew from Dublin using the government jet, uh, which is obviously quite expensive. It runs at a cost of more than €3,000 an hour to run the jet. Now, the reason the president gave was that when he was going to the north, he couldn't be provided with security at the border, that there wasn't the resources there to meet him. When he left the Republic and went into the north, uh, that he would need for his cavalcade or the motorcade to get him up to Belfast. And so he flew, and that his car, his his government-issued car, drove up to Belfast to meet him there at the airport and to take him into the lecture. Now, over the weekend, the BBC reported from sources within the PSNI saying that that was rubbish, that if they were asked to go and provide security and provide an escort for the president, for a visiting head of state, they would, of course, do that, and that that would, you know, it would be a matter of course for them, it would be a matter of routine to do it, and that the resources are available. The, the president was then, mm. his spokespeople have been asked about that, and they haven't made a huge amount of comment other than to say that they can't provide the security advice that they were given at the time. So there does seem to be a few more questions here to ask Michael D. Higgins as, as to why he did that. There's a couple of other, you know, small stories around his spending during the rounds in the Sunday papers, one in relation that was on the front page of the Sunday Times yesterday 
in relation to the OPW carrying out work on his home in Galway. Now, they said it was in order to upgrade the security facilities at his home there. Now, he doesn't live there. His son who lives there now is Michael D., of course, and Sabina live in Orison Uchtaron, but that there was some security work done there for when it happened to the back of the home. So that that's where that has gone. And, and a few other small ones. So far, nothing that has hugely dented to the president, but I do think he does have questions to answer this week coming into that final debate in relation to the jet. Right, uh, and undoubtedly there'll be a lot of focus on Michael D. Higgins. Uh, will there be much focus on Peter Casey? He's been making a lot of noise, making a, a lot of news, uh, but not really polling very well. No, now the two polls that were done at the weekend, it should be said, were done before he made his comments in regard to the travelling community. One was done up to the 16th, he made his comments on the 17th and the other poll took in the first day of that, but I don't think would have got the real impact of it or the Virgin Media debate that happened last week. So his comments, I mean, largely divisive among a lot of people. He said over the weekend he was going to consider his position, which frankly is ridiculous because mm. no one can pull out of the race at this stage. It's actually impossible for this to do so, even if he got up today and said, don't vote for me, don't vote for me, I'll, you know, you, you can't do it, I don't want to be president. His name is going to be on the ballot on Friday regardless. All of them are in this now, they can't pull out. So that was a bit of a misnomer, I think it was a, after a bit more media attention. And then he came out yesterday in the Sunday Independent and doubled down on the comments and said, no, I stand by them. I'm staying in the race. And he also had a bit of a go at social welfare chiefs. Essentially, what he said was that Ireland is moving towards being a social welfare state and that there's lots of people in receipt of grants who maybe don't do all that much. Those who take, you know, take everything and pay for nothing, as some might say, or... or um, as Leo Varadkar's ill-fated campaign went, the you know tax cheats cheat us all, this kind of thing. So I'm not sure his comments will actually do a huge amount of damage. Certainly the reaction that I've heard is he's saying stuff that a lot of people think. There is quite an anti-traveller bias out there. I mean, it would be naive of us yeah. to think that there isn't. And there can be a bias as well towards people who are on social welfare, among people who you know work and feel that they work hard and their tax money goes towards that. So I'm not sure we do any more polls this week. I doubt there's going to be one before we actually get to polling day. But realistically, all the others are just fighting for their deposits at this stage. Michael D has a lead of I mean, seven in ten people, mm-hmm. according to the polls, are going to vote for him. It's, uh, it's a matter of trying to get a bit of your money back. And just to mention that, people will also have the opportunity to vote for the Sinn Féin candidate, Leah Narita, and the independents, Gavin Duffy, Joan Freeman and Sean Galler. After Friday's poll, it'll be back to business as usual, uh, I'm sure. Or will it? Uh, because talks have started on uh, the confidence and supply agreement that Fianna Fáil has with Fine Gael. Fianna Fáil saying uh, they want this to go on for a uh, 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 while that they want a review first before of the existing agreement before looking at a, a new one and that may take up to Christmas uh, and Fine Gael saying that they want it done in a month. Yeah, those talks are getting underway this week and they're going to encompass basically a review of what's happened over the last three years in terms of confidence and supply both in terms of what they agreed to achieve and in terms of the political dimension of it, so that'll take, I suppose, two fronts, Fianna Fáil, wondering, is it worth our while staying in this? But also, does Fianna Gael have the numbers in terms of independence to actually keep a government up if we were to sign for the next year or two years or whatever it happens to be? So there's going to be a number of issues uh, that are going to be thrashed out by them in particular around agreeing a, a new a deal, including you know housing, health, broadband, mortgage interest rates is another one that Fianna Fáil are certainly pushing for. Ours are much higher than... In Europe, I think the average uh, mortgage holder here pays about two, two and a half thousand a year, a year more than those in Europe. So those are some of the issues that they are actually going to be thrashing out. Interestingly, one Fine Gael minister said to me over the weekend, he doesn't feel the team that they've picked is particularly geared towards renegotiating a deal. It includes Regina Doherty, Simon Coveney, Pascal Donoghue and Martin Hayden. And he said that 
they wouldn't be the uh, his his choice if they were actually after renegotiating any mm. deal. It was more more to um, more to actually prolong these talks, perhaps, and not achieve something. Now that minister was in the camp of those who want a November election and think that Fine Gael's numbers are not going to get a huge amount better. So it'll be interesting to see whether they are going in to actually try and sort out deals. Michal Martin has said. We can't have an election before Brexit, it just can't be done. He wants Leo Varadkar to fully commit to that, and that's something that he's been reluctant to do. He kind of wants to keep his options a bit open. So I'd say the next two, three weeks will really tell a lot as to where the two parties are, and also whether or not we will see an election before Christmas, or it'll be kicked out next spring or summer. Okay, Sean, listen, thanks uh, as always uh, for that and for joining us uh, this morning, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the terrible news uh, for 180 employees in Dundalk last uh, Friday and the winding down of uh, the Authentic Food Company. The Unite Trade Union is uh, questioning uh, the reasons behind it, uh, but the company says that it's not in a position to pay its debts and is forced into this position. Labour Party Senator Jed Nash joins us here, the former Minister for Employment and Business and somebody who would have a, a good understanding of employment law. Uh, obviously, from the workers' perspective, this is a terrible, terrible situation to find themselves in uh, and all the more worrying because uh, their entitlements are, are now being called into question. That's right. Um, I had discussions when I first learned uh, of the interim liquidation um, last um, Friday with um, the Unite representative, uh, Brendan Ogle, and uh, I raised my concerns with uh, Brendan about what had happened um, as he said uh, in his own statement uh, the company by its own standards was doing very well um, I've just uh, last night received a letter that Unite are sending to the Minister today as well stating that um, and expressing their concerns as well and mine that the company didn't seek restructuring with the workforce but went straight to the courts and sought uh, liquidation um, the letter as well that the Union is sending to the Minister today will also seek her assistance in terms of what the IDA are doing to uh, assist uh, the company, assist the workers and possibly find another buyer for the plant. But it also as well significantly the letter that the Union will be sending to the Minister today uh, will highlight the government's failure to do something that I wanted to do based on a report I commissioned in 2016 that would allow for greater protections for workers who are the victims of insolvencies and liquidations like this. Now the company is in interim liquidation, is not fully liquidated yet and this causes I think a number of other concerns for workers too because uh, it's very unclear in fact whether or not the 30 day consultation period for redundancy has been triggered. In other words whether or not the minister has been notified and that calls into question then workers' entitlement to social welfare and that's something that needs to be addressed with the liquidator and I know that the union is meeting with the liquidator today but fundamentally The situation employees mm-hmm. in Cleary's found themselves in I think that was why you wanted to bring in about a, a change of legislation uh, Absolutely um, and the change that I recommended to government um, before <coughs> excuse me, I left office in the middle of 2016 was that regardless of whether or not a company was insolvent or otherwise, that the entitlement to a 30-day statutory um, um, consultation process uh, should be introduced in any event because what shouldn't happen is you know companies being allowed to, and I'm not saying that this is the case in this particular case, but we need to be very, very vigilant um, because, of course, Michael, the dogs in the street from Dundalk knew that this company was in difficulty, and the fact that there was no engagement whatsoever mm. with trade unions and 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 their uh, and, and employees um, led people to draw their own conclusions about what was going uh, to happen. And my concern would be that um, you know when 
restructuring like this happens, the last people in the queue are the workers in mm. terms of creditors. And that is actually the case in Irish law. The first kind of creditors are uh, revenue commissioners, Department of Social Protection and so on, and way down the food chain are our employees. So as it stands in any liquidation, um, the reality is that um, in a normal liquidation, mm. if I can put it like that, a normal insolvency, um, staff are only entitled to two weeks statutory redundancy, two weeks per year of service. Yeah, but uh, some of the people there have been working there for 25 years. Well, they have because they would have been subject to transfer of mm. undertakings, uh, regulations when the plant was essentially transferred from Heinz mm. to uh, advanced food. Uh, and um, so they would build up very significant uh, entitlements. And the opportunity as well that a 30-day consultation process mm. in normal circumstances gives to the union to try to, A, uh, look at if a rescue plan can be organised because trade unions uh, in the normal course of events will work with an organisation mm. that's in difficulty to try to um, restructure the organisation. can be quite jobs, inventive, yes. And mm. can, absolutely mm. can be very, very effective uh, and work on a very pragmatic and practical mm. basis to save jobs because ultimately the trade union would like to save the jobs and workers mm. want to save their jobs. What about the assets though? I mean there's a fine plant there and I'm sure there's a, a lot of very valuable machinery for that matter. That's it and uh, that's why we need to look very closely as well and the union needs to look very closely mm. at the relationship between uh, the uh, company in Dundalk uh, and uh, the parent company well, based in the UK. That, that's a, that, that is a significant but separate issue to the assets. Uh, the, the building itself in Dundalk uh, which was part of the Cleary's conundrum uh, that people couldn't understand that there was such a, a valuable building in the middle of O'Connell Street and people being let go without redundancy That's from correct. the company. Uh, the key but, point that I was always making, that mm. there was an asset there that actually couldn't be gone after, as it were, by the staff for their redundancy payments and other entitlements. Mm. And the machinery, the vehicles, whatever other assets they would have, and I'm sure that... Uh, they'd have quite a, a lot of assets at a company of that size. That, that's right and, and there is a provision in company law that has gone untested mm. Michael and I've raised this for the last two and a half years when I've been trying to convince this government to change the law to better protect workers in insolvency uh, type um, arrangements is that section 599 without boring you and the listeners about the details um, provides for um, the opportunity for um, creditors um, and in this case workers to go after the related assets of a company uh, to make sure that those assets can be used um, to generate Resources for their redundancy uh, and other monies that they may they may be owed through you know um, sick leave or sorry holiday leave mm. uh, and so on because if it's a case that that they don't uh, it's the taxpayer that's on the hook through the but insolvency. Does fund. that mean that that's a, an option that is open to the trade union under law? Um, it would be open to the workers represented by the trade unions yeah. and mm. they would require obviously get legal advice on that. But the point that I was making uh, and uh, I think trade unions largely accept broadly accept this, that this is a law that needs to be tested. I tried, for example, after the Cleary's debacle to get the Department of Social Protection um, to um, take this test case um, because what we wanted to do, we knew that those who were involved in the Cleary's scenario were wealthy individuals involved with uh, significant companies, had significant assets. And it was my view uh, that those individuals and their related assets that they held in other companies should have been gone after Mm. uh, to try to liquidate some assets to make sure that uh, the state covered the monies that were owed to them in the context of the, to us as taxpayers, um, in the context of the uh, Cleary's insolvency fund, access, Cleary's workers' access in the insolvency fund. In terms of Cleary's, it costs €1 million Euros to pay redundancy uh, to those 460 yeah. workers. Um, so um, I think it's only right um, that the state should seek uh, that money back. So we just need to be very vigilant when it mm. comes to restructurings like this. Look at the relationships as well between you know parent companies and mm. these sort of... We'll talk, talk, companies. talk about that, because the, 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 um, the headquarters is in Manchester. Isn't it? That's right. We've been told all along that um, by the company's own statements, this company has been doing 
quite well. Um, and then suddenly the parent company decides that it doesn't want to resource this organisation uh, any longer. So it will be, I think, up to the liquidator and the courts to look very closely at that uh, relationship. Um, the uh, liquidation hearing, I understand, it, has taken place on the 12th of November. And we need mm. to be very vigilant and look very closely at you know, where assets being transferred between both companies, mm. where assets being you know, put beyond use by the Dundalk company or, uh, that wait, couldn't be accessed wait, by Are by there staff. two companies or one company? I, I mean, is the Dundalk branch like a franchise or are they not part of the same company and if uh, the company uh, overall has the ability to pay the redundancy surely that's the question that's it or, or to 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 indeed work with the um, tra- mm. with the trade union and workers to identify um, a better future um, for the organisation. That is actually at the heart uh, of, of this of this question looking at all of those relationships um, you know at the moment um, all we can do is take at face value um, the documents that were open in court last week in the context of the provisional liquidation hearing. Um, but we need to dig a lot deeper to look at those relationships and mm. um, to see where this company's assets are, uh, to um, confirm or otherwise, mm. uh, and to look very closely at you know how they did their business over the last few months. Because, as I said earlier on, the dogs in the street and Dundalk knew, particularly the workers knew, that this uh, mm. operation was in difficulty. The union tried to contact the organisation to engage with them to look at how they could assist in terms of rescuing the situation. And when those calls aren't returned, yeah. people draw their own conclusions. Well, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think that's the point that we were making on the programme last week. Uh, it's one thing when the company says to you, we're not in trouble, but when you're asking them if they're in trouble and they don't respond, well then, uh, you'd have to assume that they are. But are you saying uh, that you're concerned that the redundant workers won't be entitled to welfare? Uh, well, um this, this is a complex situation and just to go back to the clearing mm. situation for example I worked very closely with the liquidator in the first few days of that mm. provisional liquidation to ensure that P45s are issued so people yeah. could access social welfare organised for the Department of Social Protection representatives it's a hugely important issue if somebody's worried about making the, the next mortgage payment or whatever absolutely, yeah. mm. absolutely mm. Um, to allow them to make ends meet until mm. such time as th- this is uh, resolved um, you know question arises as well about the status whether or not these work whether or not the redundancy has been triggered if it hasn't uh, then my own view is that they wouldn't be entitled to um uh, social protection support because they are in essence still working for the organization and then they need to be paid um so it's a, it's quite a gray area i think the meeting that the that brendan ogle and unite representatives and shop stewards i think will be happening will be having with the liquidator today will throw a little more light on this but i've assured the union i'm available to assist and use the benefit of my knowledge and experience to try to assist the workers in every way mm. I can. I've uh, sought a debate uh, in the Shannon Chamber tomorrow with the uh, Minister for Business, Heather Humphreys, uh, to discuss not just this, but her failure and this government's failure to um, take on the recommendations I made in April 2016 following the Duffy Cahill investigation to change the law to provide for better security for workers who are caught up in these kinds of insolvencies. Okay, you're, you're worried about... The events that led up to this, what happened and how it transpired, uh, but you're also concerned uh, about the situation that the employees find themselves in now. Absolutely, because that's the thing I think we should all be concerned about. I mean, there are 180 people, hardworking people who uh, are in great difficulty now. who uh, don't know where the next paycheck uh, or um, financial bit of financial support is going to come from. There should be more clarity. By the end of this, this week, though, there should, should be, be more clarity, in fact, I would imagine, mm. um, after the meeting with today. the liquidator today, mm. because yeah. I think mm. uh, if it is a case that uh, 
these positions are going to become redundant, then it's important that the P45s are issued yeah. to every worker to enable them to get social welfare support as soon as possible. I would be happy to assist uh, with the Department of Social Protection to ensure that payments are made to these uh, workers and their families as soon as is humanly possible. Okay, many thanks uh, for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, people want to know why there's no money to help uh, children with uh, scoliosis or the 4,000 children who are homeless in this country while there's millions of uh, taxpayers' money to be spent on providing abortions next year. This is according to Sinn Féin TD for me, the West, Peter Tobin, who is speaking on the legislation which will introduce uh, abortion in the Dáil last week and he said that people should remember that over 700,000 people voted no in the referendum and of those who voted yes, many uh, would not be happy with uh, the way the bill is being brought through the House and aspects of it. He joins us now and good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. I think they've allocated 14 million towards uh, abortion services next year uh, from uh, the budget of a couple of weeks ago, haven't they? Yeah, first of all, I'm speaking on my own behalf uh, in this discussion, as as usual, on, on this topic, and uh, Sinn Féin seek to uh, have this bill passed. Um, I have a different view, and um, while I do accept, obviously, that the, a large majority of the people voted to uh, repeal the AIDS, and that it's a democratic wish of the Irish people, and that abortion will be made available in Ireland, uh, I don't accept that the particular bill in front of the Dáil is necessarily the will of the Irish people. And um, the the chair of the Referendum Commission, Justice Isabel Kennedy, stated clearly before the referendum that a vote on this, uh, on the Eighth Amendment, was a vote to take the Eighth Amendment out only, and that led, it would be then up to the Dáil to discuss and determine legislation in the future. And as you stated there, um, on the day, there was a very scientific exit poll carried out by RTE, and it asked about 4,000 people, which is a sample size nearly... Um, four times the amount of the normal polls that we see in the paper. Mm. Um, it, it, it drilled down into each specific issue around this particular bill and asked them their view. And even of those who voted yes, about 20% of those uh, were really uncomfortable with uh, elements of this particular bill. So if you take the, the three quarters of a million people who voted no and a quarter of a million yes voters who were uncomfortable with elements of this particular bill, I think it's important that their voice uh, is heard in this debate mm. uh, in the legislature. The people, the people who did vote for it knew what they were voting for, didn't they? No, see, and, and that's, that, that is the key issue. Uh, that's people, suggesting that they're stupid. No, because they're asked a binary question. And people voted... Well, absolutely. People yeah. voted yes or no, yes. Uh, and they didn't vote on the detail of the particular bill. And... It's, but, not, it's not that we have to guess this, but, but they did, because, I, I mean, we were told what would be brought forward if the referendum was carried. Well, first of all, the level of knowledge on the content of the bill is extremely poor, even in Leinster House. I spoke to a Fianna Fáil TD recently. He didn't realise <clears throat> that abortion would be available under this bill at six months gestation. I spoke to another uh, TD who didn't realise that abortion would be available b- beyond that. Uh, in certain cases. Um, well, it's so up to people to inform themselves. And if they, don't, if they don't inform themselves and they go for something, they vote for something they don't understand, well, then they're stupid. And you're suggesting that that's what happened. No, listen, people, people listened to Isabel Kennedy, 
who is the chairperson of the Referendum Commission. So they didn't listen to you and, when and you were said, on prime he, time debating it or on this programme debating it or any well, of the it, other occasions? First of all, it, of Isabel other. Kennedy of the Referendum Commission, who are the last word with regards to the legal elements of the referendum, stated yes. that the referendum mm. was not on the bill. The referendum was in the legislation. And interestingly enough, I spoke before the referendum and I said to people, be careful about this particular vote because some people will we'll take this as a vote on the legislation. And many journalists and interviewers and radio stations say, that's nonsense, Pather. People are wise enough to know that this is only on repealing the eighth, it's not on the legislation at all. And what I'm saying has come mm. true to a certain extent, that now uh, people are using it to say that it's actually the legislation. And I, mean, as well, I, I, I can't argue with your opinion because you're entitled to it, uh, but uh, it's uh, way off the mark in my opinion because well, I, I think people okay. knew what, what the minister had said. He said Michael, if, 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 if you... If, if that's the case, if that's the case, RTE carried out an exit poll yes. on the day with nearly 4,000 people answered questions of it, okay? Mm. Now... A quarter of a million yes voters said that they were against abortion on request up until 12 weeks. They voted, Middle Ireland in, mm. in the main, I believe, voted because they wanted to see abortion made available in cases of rape, in cases of incest, yes. in cases where there was a significant threat to the health of the mother. You're going over the and campaign again and the no, arguments, because that, that was the thing, you couldn't have one without the other. No, and it, people you, understood that. Of course you can. There's many countries that have abortion available in the cases of rape where there isn't available in, in other cases. So, for example, in Spain, if you have suffered <clears throat> the, the grievous uh, attack of rape and you have become pregnant as a result of it, you can procure a, an abortion in that case, if you wish, in Spain. But abortion isn't available then uh, for, for absolutely no reason as a result of that. Well, so people here were saying we didn't want women to be tested, to, to be uh, interrogated over whether they were or were not raped. In, in Spain, there's no test and there's no interrogation. There's, there's a report of the crime to uh, the local police force, and, and, and that's the difference. Well, sometimes so, women don't want to report a crime. And, and, and that may be the case. But all I'm saying to you is, mm. we can conjecture, myself and yourself. Mm. However, on the day of the referendum, 4,000 people left the ballot, uh, ballot stations and were asked a question. And scientifically, that would be one of the most detailed polls that are carried out ever in the country. Yeah, well, and I mean, in that poll, it, uh, all I'm saying is, the reflection of that poll, which had, a, which had an error rate of about 3%, mm. said that a large proportion up to 50% of the population, even of those who voted yes, did not want abortion available uh, on okay, the and, and I, I, I can think of many people who, who would have said that and would have voted yes. Yeah. Uh, and many politicians who would have said that and would have campaigned for a yes vote. Sure. I can't say the same of Thomas Byrne, uh, but I do know that he would have been uncomfortable with uh, abortion in the circumstances that you outlined. The reason that I mention him is because you mentioned him on a couple of occasions in your contribution the other night uh, and reckoned that the reason he wants to rush this through now is because of a, a civil war within Fianna Fáil. <clears throat> there's no doubt anybody who has been speaking to Fianna Fáil is in this, is that there's a... Fianna Fáil is like an inverted pyramid at the moment. It's... Uh, Mihal Martin is surrounded by a cabal of very ambitious TDs, but and those TDs are basically telling the membership and the other TDs to get stuffed on this particular issue. And I don't and know, because Thomas Byrne was very clear before the vote. He, he said he, he would act on foot of the will of the people. Now he's saying he's going to do what he said then, the people have spoken, and he's going to act on foot of that. 
But like, what I'm saying to you here is that the will of the people, legally and politically, is to repeal the Eighth Amendment. As far as the legislation is concerned, the legislation then has to be decided by the doll. There are major difficulties happening around uh, Meal Martin, <clears throat> and, and Thomas Byrne is part of that uh, group of this. Listen, the, 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 the key issue here is... I mean, when a politician does what they said they would do, is it not fair to start picking on them and saying uh, that they're doing this because of an internal war? First of all, um, the, the, the key line in this particular bill states that uh, abortion is the ending of a life of an unborn child. Okay, Now, if you believe that abortion is the ending of a life of an unborn child, that means by voting for it in the doll, you are responsible for the every time that clause is enacted. And for Thomas Byrne to state in advance of the, of the referendum that he is a pro-life TD and that he opposes uh, he opposes abortion and then says that he is actually going to vote for it. There, that is not uh, saying one thing and doing the, the same thing. It's okay. actually doing the opposite. Well, it, uh, is, it, is, it is what he, he said he would do. Uh, but you bring us uh, nicely uh, to the last question because we're just about out of time. Are you going to vote with or against this bill, with or against your party? Well, I'll be voting against the bill. Uh, I've always stated very clearly that uh, abortion is, is such an important issue uh, it is the ending of a life of another individual human being. And um, every TD, and, and this happens regularly in the Dáil, where TDs vote for issues and then say they're not responsible for it. If you vote for an issue uh, within the Dáil, you are responsible for that. And what uh, and, next then and, for and Peter Tobin and Sinn Féin? With regard to the substantive issue here, is, and, and I made the point mm-hmm. in, in the Dáil the other day, so we have 350,000 women on waiting lists currently in the health service. Yeah, no, I, I, was I was actually amazed that I was actually amazed that Sinn Féin let you speak in uh, the uh, dull debate. Uh, but what next for Padre Tobin and Sinn Féin? Well, tomorrow will tell the uh, tell the tale in that I'm a committed Irish Republican. I've been involved in Sinn Féin for 21 years. I've worked as hard as I can for a united Ireland and for economic justice. I hope to remain um, to be able to fight for those uh, two objectives into the future and to work for my constituents. And I will say this, just, just one, one other issue. I have many great uh, friends and comrades uh, within Sinn Féin and you know, we have worked very well in the past together and I hope to be able to work with them into the future. Okay, we'll uh, talk to you anon as they say, but thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD from Meath West, Peter Tobin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning to you, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Before we get to those comments, though, Michael, I want to go back to last Friday when we had that, I suppose you could call it a fairly lively exchange of views between the two councillors, P.O. Smith and Kenneth Flood, on the whole matter of the budget and uh, the the rejection of the proposal to increase the parking charges. And during that discussion, uh, Councillor Flood had mentioned that uh, Councillor Paul Bell had complained at the budget meeting that the adopted budget for 2018 was not spent on measures agreed to help fight antisocial behaviour in Ratmullen Park. And Councillor
Minister Bell just got in touch with us following that, just to make, I suppose, two points in, in context. He says that um, he raised two issues and uh, to put them in context, he said they were as follows. He acknowledged that such was the pressure on the housing budget that council executives, uh, that the home pair, that, that, that sorry, that such was the pressure on the housing bu- budget that the house repairs and maintenance were to pri- be prioritised and this meant that monies for antisocial behaviour measures were shelved. Unfortunately, this was the case and I understand that decision, which is beyond the control of the elected members. Secondly, I supported and strongly advocated for Councillor Smith's motion on the basis that monies secured through the adoption of an additional 20 cent, which would amount to 250,000, would be under the direct control of the elected and directed towards projects of importance to our community such as expansion of free car parking, traffic lights, road safety measures and measures to combat antisocial in communities. These funds would be ring-fenced and out of reach of the council executive he says. So happy to clarify that Michael. Okay. Moving on then to those comments, we've had some in in response to the referendum on Friday just on foot of your interview at the top of the show with our political correspondent Sean Defoe Eric from Dundalk says I think the law on blasphemy should be changed to the word slander of one's name as it's an attempt to destroy an innocent person Uh, blasphemy yes Mm. okay I'm not sure Uh, it has religious uh, that's right yes yes Mm. I'm just this is mm. just a text that came in from Eric another listener says Michael there has been very little if any coverage of this referendum I spoke to many family members over the weekend and none of them really have a clue what it is about it really has been overshadowed by the presidential election <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the case uh, <laughs> to be honest with you uh, but I hope uh, we helped people understand it a, a little bit better by having the discussion on the radio this morning when Charlie says phoned in from Nav and I for one would be all in favour of keeping the blasphemy law you could have people uh, ringing into your show all the time life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm uh, talking about uh, maybe the whole role of the presidency being ridiculous or certain politicians not being great if we did away with it, says Charlie. And I think he was saying this in jest, Michael. Oh, right. right. <laughs> I'll have to think about that. I'm sorry. I didn't have my read books today. Uh, Tony mm-hmm. from County Loud says, the argument by your guests that we are being used as an example to support extreme lows in other countries I find very tenuous and is indeed news to me. The fact that the reference to blasphemy is doing no harm where it is is surely reason enough to leave things as they are. It is some little protection for the majority of this country who identify as Catholics and have respect for its symbols, etc. Will Muslims be asked to remove their ban on any uh, depiction of Muhammad? I think not. This is just one more example of how our latter-day governments of all colours want to dismantle the older Irish values and certainly anything to do with our Catholic religion. Well, I guess that's what in effect uh, this... uh uh, will do if uh, the people decide to remove blasphemy mm. from uh, the constitution and then the government acts on foot of that uh, and changes the law so that it is no longer a criminal offence. Well, the type of uh, behaviour that he was talking about there in relation to some religions will uh, no longer be a criminal o- offence. And as to what Sean Defoe said, I-, I don't think he was offering his own opinions when he spoke uh, about uh, the argument uh, that uh, this is being used used in other countries uh, where blasphemy is punished uh, through uh, severe uh, sanctions such as death uh, mm. because they will point to countries like Ireland and say, well, look, it's an offence there, it's an offence here and it's just the punishment is different. Uh, uh, he, what he actually said was that that's uh, the government's argument. Another listener says, and this comes in from John, have any cases been taken under the blasphemy law in recent years? Not that he can remember, he says. So why the need to remove it? Just leave it alone. If it's left there, at least it could be a deterrent to people who are being disrespectful and abusive towards matters held sacred Mm. by any religion. Well, I believe there was uh, one case uh, taken against independent newspapers in the 90s, but it wasn't allowed. And of course... uh, uh, then there was the concern uh, that a complaint had been made to the Gardaí about uh, Stephen Fry uh, on RTE television. I think it was 2015 or, or thereabouts uh, on the Meaning of Life programme. That's with, right. Uh, Gay Byrne and I as to whether that, yeah. uh, he had been blasphemous or not. Tom agrees with Sean Defoe's earlier comment that very few people know what they be, are being asked to vote for on Friday in the referendum. He said that he asked a number of his friends over the weekend what they knew about it and their knowledge was patchy to say the least. So much emphasis is being put on who will be in the hours that nobody has remembered that they are being asked on changing the legislation of the country as well. Government have really dropped the ball when it comes to providing information to the public on this important vote. Okay. Mary says the Friday can't come soon enough for her. All right, okay. Where, <laughs> why, is, she, where why, is she off to? Why do you think? <laughs> She's because gone down to Kerry for the weekend. Is it? She feels yeah. that this campaign has been running forever. Mm. She's sick and tired of the mudslinging and backbiting that we've seen in recent weeks. It's dragging the role of the president through the dirt and shouldn't be allowed to continue. Okay. Michael, another listener, says uh, this comes in from Jared. Uh, Peter Casey said on Friday he was suspending his campaign. I think, Michael, it lasted all of a day because he was in the Sunday papers then saying that he had had a change of heart. Do you think he's playing the media? Jared wants to know. I certainly don't know. Of course not. (laughs)
another listener got in touch, Sean. Uh, and Sean actually phoned in on Friday to say that he is planning on giving Peter Casey his number one, even though that wasn't his original intention. He admires him for his honesty and his openness and willing to speak up on issues that many others avoid. Mm. So there you go. Okay. Moving on then to the situation in Dundalk that you were discussing with um, Senator Nash. Mm. We had a couple of comments in just from listeners uh, concerning the Authentic Food Company. Um, Margaret got in touch and Margaret says she feels from listening to the show and the news over the weekend it's appalling the way the company just shut up shop as she puts it despite denying the rumours initially that there was something amiss very hard on the workers another listener feels sorry for the workers in the company who don't know now what they are entitled to not a very nice way to be treated was the company not doing well and could something not be done is there no interventions by the state that could help to keep it opened asks another there's a lot of questions obviously yes Jack text in from Cullen to say is this the company who took over from Heinz if so did they get any state funds to set up? It doesn't seem that they're long in business, says Jack. Okay, well, I'd uh, imagine that is uh, the case. I think the IDA were trying to get answers from them last week, yeah. So I'm going to finish up on that one, Michael. All right, uh, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you, and Marie and Maggie are taking calls uh, this morning if you want to ring us on 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, presidential candidate uh, Gavin Duffy is one of six names who will be on uh, the ticket uh, when you go to vote on Friday for the next president of Ireland. He's with us again this morning. And thanks for coming in to us. I was saying to Sean Defoe earlier on that it's been a really lacklustre campaign. And uh, I'm not sure if you'll agree, but I think the reason it's been a lacklustre campaign is that you have a very successful capable incumbent president in Michael D. Higgins, uh, not one of the other candidates, yourself included, brings any new vision to replacing him. Well, I have a new vision, but we haven't been discussing a new vision uh, by, by, by any of the candidates. Oh, great. I, so I, we're I, going to hear about yeah, it this morning, are yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, but oh, I, 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 I agree with you, mm-hmm. uh, Michael, uh, that uh, we have the incumbent uh, who went in uh, to the election on uh, around 67% and has held. Mm-hmm. So up to now, no impact has been made uh, on that lead. So the other five candidates, mm-hmm. uh, we were in the last week uh, distracted by the Peter Casey debacle over travellers. Mm. But uh, when you've got somebody uh, in office who is as popular and capable as Michael D. Higgins, I mean, you have to bring something incredible to the argument to convince people that you would be suitable to replace him. I mean, you have to be telling us you're going to take us to the moon or something like that that we haven't heard of as yet. Well, yes, but, mm. you know, if, if you were saying something like that, people will then say, but sure, the president can't do anything. But mm. why, therefore, uh, would you take on somebody who is uh, a popular, competent uh, incumbent. I I would say to parents particularly listening to me now, I am very aware of the seismic changes that are going to be happening in Irish society over the next seven to ten years. Uh, A generation ago, people uh, went, uh, you know, to the workforce, got a job, were employed. Mm. Uh, Despite the opportunities that younger people have these days, the sacrifices their parents have made to put them through college, perhaps, um, they're going to end up being contractors. That's the way the world is moving. 
thing mm. with artificial intelligence, which is going to affect jobs and professional services, and robotics uh, really going to impact on uh, manufacturing. And I'm somebody who knows the issues that are going to be coming at us over the next while. A lot of people might say, well, Gavin, you applied for the wrong job. Should you not have run for the doll? Or should you? But I actually do feel that the president has a role to influence how we're going to react mm. to that. Because if we start to see displacement in the, the, the workplace of, of, of large numbers of jobs due, mm. due, due to te- technology, what has happened in the presidential election is what I'm concerned is going to happen. Uh, it happened in the United States, it's happened in the UK, and we see Peter Casey doing it here in this election. We start attacking minorities be it in the US or the UK, immigrants, travellers here, mm. now he's on no, to no, uh, 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 social welfare yeah. recipients. Now, Michael, I agree with you. Is that enough of a platform to catch the wind and get mm. people uh, to think about it? But I have to be honest, that mm. is the reason why okay. I was uh, running uh, for uh, it. Uh, and it's something I feel passionately and strongly about. Uh, and I'm not sure that people here would see that as the way forward, but given that the candidate you're talking about isn't with us, uh, I'd like to talk about something else uh, and uh, what it is that Gavin Duffy brings to this. This because I think maybe 20% of the haves in this country would identify with somebody like you, a, a businessman who, as you say, can identify opportunities uh, for investment and so forth. But the 20% of the have-nots in this country uh, would just see you as a tough. Yeah. Well, look, that that has come up a few times. And mm. it's, it's, it's been a problem for me. But, you know, I'm here on LMFM and people in Loudoun Mead know me very, very well. And yes, they know I'm somebody who has enjoyed uh, some success in life uh, through through business, which I always think is as much down to luck as anything else, mm. Michael, right? But that shouldn't disqualify f- somebody from uh, running for public office. But do you understand uh, what it is to be a have-not? For somebody who can't uh, afford uh, rain coat or have a, a hot meal or heating for that matter look you, you, you know uh, do you have empathy or, or or not I have it in 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 spades right mm. uh, the Sunday Times yesterday in its editorial said of the other candidates apart from uh, Michael D Higgins I was the one with the competency that 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 could do the job uh, per, perhaps right mm. uh, you, you know with 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 a few reservations but uh, I would say to uh, the people of, of Loudoun Meath who know me, uh, look, I need you to go to the polls on mm. uh, on Friday and dispel this myth that uh, I'm somebody who is out of touch with uh, with real people. Um, you know, I'm. You know, I've said this before. Mm. People know I'm. My, my dad was a pig farmer. You know, we were dragged up in the pub business, uh, and. Uh, you know, I didn't go to college. Uh, I, I'm somebody who went straight to work in 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 in, mm. in radio when I was uh, 18, and uh, was very very lucky in in life. But in in the business I've been doing, working with people, I've learned an awful lot about how uh, the country works. And uh, as I said, I, I, there are certain issues that are going to affect all of us as regards uh, our, our, our children, such as you know, cyberbullying, um, uh, childhood obesity. Uh, and as a president, I wanted to and do want to lead uh, on campaigns like that. And, and the type of society that we want to build is something you want us to have a, a national conversation about. But in order to do that, I think it is only fair to ask you, who is it that identifies with Gavin Duffy and who does Gavin Duffy identify with? Uh, If 
it is or is not the 20% of people who can't afford to turn the heat on or buy a, an overcoat, well then uh, it's probably true to say that you can identify with uh, the business community no, no, and it's, those... It's, 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 it's not that at all. Mm. It, it, like, but in, in terms of the society, just, just to finish yeah. the question, in, in terms of the society that we want to build uh, and the type of investment that you want to attract to this country mm. and the type of people you'll do business with in order to do that, are, are you willing to... Uh, speak to people who are involved in clandestine deals. No, why would I be interested in talking to people in clandestine deals? Well, Dennis O'Brien. No, no, uh, sorry, that's just uh, not 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 correct. Um, Now, if you want to say he's he's involved in clandestine deals, that's fine. I, uh, I, in my business career, have, like uh, a lot of accountants Mm. and lawyers, provided services to people at certain times. That's what my business has done. Yeah, Uh, you got 18,000 for services uh, rendered to Dennis O'Brien. That's over a period of, of, of 20 years. But it was in light of the Moriarty Tribunal, wasn't it? There was. A, yes, there, there and was. it was the Moriarty Tribunal who said that Dennis O'Brien was involved with Michael Lowry who received payments from him through a series of clandestine property deals. I know, but Michael... That's the finding of a state tribunal. I know, but there would be lawyers all over the country who work with people who are before the courts, uh, etc. You wouldn't say to them they can't run for public office because they were involved in giving advice to somebody who was found, uh, you know, in the wrong by a tribunal. Like, that's that's what you're suggesting About the findings of the tribunal. Uh, That was the advice you were giving him, wasn't it not? Yeah, yeah, but you don't know what advice I was giving because that's confidential, right? So, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's wrong to draw from that that that's the type of person that I would be or how I would operate like that. What I'd say to you, Michael, is that I have ran for the presidency. It is understandably a uh, gruelling campaign where everything is scrutinised about you. Not one person has come forward and said, I never paid a bill. Not one person has come forward and said I was ever involved in a dodgy deal. Not one person has said they ever had an affair with me. Mm. Not one person has said... You, you know, the people in Loud and Meath know me. A young lad who set up a pirate radio station uh, wanted to bring local radio to the northeast. Uh, was involved in setting up this great station LMFM that's that's what I did right and Michael I admire you for the role that you play now because that's what local radio is about it's about holding up a mirror and asking the difficult questions but Michael you know you're sitting opposite somebody whose integrity uh, is I believe I I have to say it uh, has has stood any test right and uh, you know, I'm putting myself forward and I know that the people of Loud and Meath can mm. can vote for me knowing that they're voting for somebody who is uh, of the utmost integrity. Now, if I offered advice to other people in business like lawyers and accountants do uh, and, and uh, other professions like that, uh, that's what I did. That's how I earned my living. I, I don't apologise for it. That's a fact of life and uh, that's how I, uh, I've operated. Okay, and well, if people want to ask okay. questions about that... And other things, you know, we're having a meeting tonight. Uh, we, we thought it was good mm-hmm. to hold it in the Weavers, uh, just uh, a trip down memory lane. And I want to.
to thank Paul Egan, Eamon Duffy, Audrey Gallen and Karen Healy who've organised that event tonight and Caroline Cavan as well who's uh, done great work for us uh, and councillors like Sharon Kogan and uh, Nick Killian, uh, Frank Godfrey and Maeve Yor who've been very, very supportive uh, of, of my campaign. But uh, that's tonight in the Weavers and uh, I'm really asking mm-hmm. the people of uh, the North East uh, to come out and give me their number one on 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 Friday. Um, who, you give, who are you giving your number one to? My, my number one. Yeah. I'm going to Kerry for the weekend. Yeah, who, who, who are you going to? Would you give me your number one? Well, well uh, you know that I, I can't say that. You, you, you do know that I can't. Can you not? Well, well, I suppose you can't. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Sorry, I've just gone into. You see, that's the. Mm -hmm. That's I've learned how to be a politician. I wasn't being smart. You're you're sort of asking everybody. Oh yeah, no, uh, I I can't opinionate on anything actually. Yeah. Well, look, I hope Mm. privately before Mm. you vote. So so you're voting on Friday. You're not. Oh, of course, I'll vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, you know, well, sorry. Could I put it this way? Is there any reason why you wouldn't vote for me? I can't say. All right. Okay. No, honestly, uh, under. No, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be. But but you know. It would be me. illegal for me to you say. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but 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 you do know me, and uh, you know my track mm. record. So that 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 <laughs> like, like, like 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 I know yours. Yeah. No. Well, I I thought that you'd have known that I, I can't. Uh, I'm I'm legally prohibited from giving an opinion. Very good. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not sure that it is very good. Uh, I'd have questions about it. Uh, that's an opinion. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that, but there you go. Yeah, uh, yeah, but listen, yeah. thanks for coming in to us uh, you, this Michael. morning. The closing days of the campaign, big debate big tomorrow debate, night. Uh, tomorrow night, tonight, yes, on, and, on uh, RT, on prime time. Uh, and a, so. a, a lie-in on Sunday, maybe. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, yeah, hopefully, yeah, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> listen, thank you very much. Thank you very thank much you. indeed. Uh, and best of luck in these last few days of uh, the campaign to you and to all of the candidates. Gavin Duffy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I should probably mention to you uh, that there was a, a very good reason for asking uh, the candidate uh, if he knew what it was like uh, to be without heating or to be without uh, a couple of pairs of strong shoes or a waterproof coat or a meal that has meat, chicken or fish every second day. And the reason... Uh, I was asking uh, is because I believe that the president of this country probably should know what it's like to be in that situation. And the reason for that is that, unfortunately, there's a a lot of people not just without one of those basics, but without two of those basics, uh, defining them as being in enforced deprivation. And this is official figures from uh, the Central Statistics Office last week show that 21 percent of people were in enforced deprivation in 2008. And sixteen, and we're joined by Madeleine Ivelija, social justice representative for the Society of Saint Vincent de Paul in the Northeast and Midlands. Good morning to you, Madeleine. Good morning, Michael. The program. Uh, these are, are, are very basic items that I suppose many of us would take for granted. Yes, indeed. But this is exactly what we, the members of Vincent de Paul, are encountering every week when we visit homes. We see the struggle it is to make ends meet. Mothers going without to try to provide for their children. And one parent families are the largest group living in poverty. Um, We see that there are almost 800,000 people living in poverty in Ireland, including 250,000 children. And, of course, uh, the children are in this situation through no fault of their own. Absolutely. I'm sure and it's of the case of... And 8.3% in consistent poverty, that includes 105,000 working p- poor, people who are 
on part-time or full-time employment on low low wages. Uh, it, it's uh, not much of a, a, a life for people if uh, they're it's cold, or, cold or hungry. We had a survey done recently with families and people who were below the, that level, 10% and 20%. And they really all, they were um, part of the, half of them were urban, half of them rural. And we had, we found one parent families were really the most um, vulnerable and um, suffering from deprivation. But all of them had terrible stories to tell of trying to juggle to pay bills. And it's probably impossible to quantify the impact this is having on those people, uh, which is 21% of the population, uh, but on those people and on the rest of us. Because when you have people in such dire circumstances, uh, there has to be some impact, uh, whether that's uh, on their mental health or on their ability to survive and the action that they might take and how it may see people drop out of education or it might lead to crime or whatever the case may be. It's, it, it impacts on every aspect of their lives and every aspect of the children's lives. Now, parents make heroic efforts to try to contain the effect on children. They prioritise that before everything else. But even then, they feel guilt at not being able to provide for their children, the same as other parents. Mm. Uh, And... Is it that simple that they're just not able to, that they want to, but they either haven't got the wherewithal or the opportunities aren't there for them? Well, it's, a, it's really both. Uh, they don't have this sufficient funds and the longer they're in this, uh, um, whatever you call it, poverty trap, yeah. <laughs> they, the longer they ha- the more deprived they get because any things that they had, any savings they had, are all used up trying to meet the everyday needs. And the strain of it all really tells on families the emotional distress of not being able to provide for their children. Mm. And families often felt lonely, sad or ashamed and embarrassed because of their low income. And they were very vulnerable when confronted with an unexpected um, expense like a car breaking down in or in rural Ireland is a huge issue mm. trying to find the money to to pay the carriage and and get the car back on the road because in rural Ireland transport is so irregular that they absolutely need a car and we're living in a wealthy country, a very wealthy country uh, in uh, international terms uh, and there's an awful lot of people who have a, an awful lot of money in this country. Do people who have not look at those who have uh, and wonder why that is the case? 20% of the population have 8.3% of the income and 20% have 38 percent of the income so the people on the lower income on the the, the percentile at the mm. lowest 20 percent have to earn 
4.7 years of income to equate with what the people in the top 20% overall mm. earn. You know, it's so unfair. Is it? I suppose so that's the question I was asking. children mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to grow up seeing the difference because children are very conscious of, of what other children have and can be very upset because they see that they don't have, particularly smaller children who don't understand. Very early on, children learn that they don't have the same as others. And if that can lead to quite quite um, an amount of social problems later on. Mm. Well, I, I presume uh, the first impression uh, is that they're better than me. Yes, yes. And then the, the opportunities they have mm. for for education, for sporting activities, everything costs money. And you said it's unfair. Is it fair to ask people uh, to subsidise other people? Uh, if uh, people are, are successful, undoubtedly they're working hard uh, and uh, they're deserving of the rewards for everything uh, that they do to... Uh, improve their own lives uh, and I mean you, you, you quite often hear um, that uh, argument from politicians and from people who say that you know we pay too much tax I- in this country and that uh, we have to be competitive and all of that kind of, of thing and that if you're going to attract the right people here you have to encourage them by rewarding them more. Of course they need to be rewarded but we also have to look at particularly families um, who are struggling like they're the future of the country and to get them out of the poverty trap we need to put the money into very substantial uh, good child care to very substantial funding for um, extra uh, um, resources into schools to help the children who are suffering from deprivation and disadvantage because education is the best way to break the cycle of disadvantage. There is, uh, of course, help uh, from St. Vincent de Paul and other organisations, uh, I'm sure, and you'd uh, spend millions every year helping people in this situation. Uh, and undoubtedly, uh, that's the way we have as a society decided to fund this. It's not that we're funding it, it's just that uh, it's being done through charity. It is, and it's been done on the ground, and it's been done on an individual basis where we can see that people are making an effort and we need to support them to get out of the trap with education and with training. Is it the millionaires and billionaires, though, who are donating to St. Vincent de Paul? It is every strand of society. Mm. It's the pensioner who gives a little contribution every week. It's the people who donate online. It's businesses who see that as a charity that works with people on the ground. Mm. We don't have high costs for what we do. We're mostly Mm. volunteers. I just wonder, though, and I I don't know the answer to this question, I just wonder, though, if it's more likely to be the pensioner who gives a a little bit every week uh, that uh, helps fund the work that you do rather than the millionaires and the billionaires. Yes, yes, but we do have very substantial 
donations as well. Like people, you know, are good and sometimes people who have been helped along the way and have made it are very good to support the work that we do. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course it's the families that have to come look for charity and uh, I gather that It's a very difficult thing to have to lift the phone and often they would say look I lifted the phone three times before I had the courage to speak and look for help Mm. and uh, you know people who have through ill health or an accident or a family bereavement have had a change in their circumstances and they come to us for support, for friendship, and then for assistance. Mm-hmm. And these stories, uh, that statistic from the CSO is of no surprise to you, as uh, I think you said uh, at the outset, 21% of people uh, defined as being in enforced deprivation because you're seeing people who are without heat or without proper shoes or, or, or overcoats or whatever the case may be. Yes, yes, and struggling week after week. And, you know, in some cases, it's extremely difficult psychologically to take the stress off it mm. when it when it persists. Um, low paid employment is one of the at-risk groups. There are 105,000 working people who are considered in the working poor category. Category, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, look, we'll leave it there for the moment. Many thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. The uh, cost of education mm-hmm. is one of the, and utilities make life extremely challenging for those mm-hmm. living on low income. Oh, God knows, uh, both are, are very expensive, uh, and I think any parents uh, who have school going children uh, will testify to that. Madeline, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Right, thank you. M- much appreciated. Madeline uh, Veloja is uh, the social justice representative for the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Independent uh, reports uh, today on what it describes as a scandal. 3,600 council houses uh, which are vacant and we're joined by John Mark McCafferty, who's uh, the chief executive of uh, the housing uh, agency Threshold. Good morning to you, John Mark, and thanks morning, uh, for Mike. joining us here on the programme this morning. That seems like a, a lot of houses uh, that I'm sure uh, they could uh, find use for? Absolutely, given the housing crisis. Um, and um, it looks like it's just under 3% um, of all properties that local authorities have that are, are vacant. Now, that is an improvement, believe it or not, mm. on 2015, which was, was about 3.5%. Is it a scandal, though? Because, I mean, you're always going to have turnovers and vacancies uh, and so on. And I know that some of these uh, properties uh, have been lying idle for a couple of years, and we can talk about that and some of the more specific incidents in a moment. But out of 131,375 houses, uh, there's just 3,600 that are, are vacant. Uh, it's kind of a half-full, half-empty conversation, is it not? Yeah, I look, it's still unacceptable, um, given the other figures to be considered. For example, you know, 24 million was, was allocated last year to return help return social housing units back to use. Um, we know there are 72,000 households on the social housing waiting lists and almost 10,000 people who are homeless. Um, and I think what's also striking is the variation in letting uh, times and costs to the council. They're very, very different across the, the local authorities. So, for example... If you take Westmeath, it's 6.8 weeks for um, that letting period, whereas in Sligo, it's 78 weeks. 
And that's why in Westmead, it's less than a half a percent of their stock uh, that is vacant. Yeah, because they, they obviously have a, a good system, a very, an excellent system in place, which returns stock uh, back into use as quickly as possible. Mm. It's also a question of costs. So while um, Sligo uh, is very, very uh, long, I mean, unacceptably long, I mean, I, I, do, I simply don't understand why it takes 78 weeks to bring um, a social house in, into into use. Their relet cost per unit is, is its lowest at about €366, euro, while the relet costs per unit in Dublin City is over €2,500. Um, so these are huge variations, and I guess that's the the importance of the this, this report, this National Oversight and Audit Committee report, that it shows up that the variations across uh, the many local authorities across Ireland in terms of how they deal with social housing from the point of view of, of vacancy. Mm. Uh, and it's less than 2% in Loud and Mead, as we've been hearing this morning, just over 1.5% in Loud, 1.76% in County Mead. Uh, Leitrim, 5.86%. Uh, is there a story in that, perhaps, uh, because I don't know why, I think Leitrim is a, a lovely county and I'd love to live in Leitrim, but very few people do want to live there. It's got the cheapest rent, cheapest house prices uh, and so on. Is it that there isn't the demand for these council houses? I guess they don't have the same pressure. Uh, now, it's not a justification for uh, very long um, vacancy times, but uh, one of the things um, that's absent is the level of pressure that you would have in areas like Meath, um, you know, uh, the northeast generally, the, Dub- the greater Dublin area, where there's a huge um, demand on housing. And so perhaps that's part of the context. But a reasonable relet time is between um, eight to ten weeks in our eyes. I mean, it can be reasonably expected that a property that requires little maintenance work or, or upgrading can be relet in a shorter time, given that, you know, say the estate management or the relevant, relevant paperwork is in order. So, um, I mean, for local authorities, like they need um, allocating officers to, mm. to work ahead, you know, across the local authorities, look at the waiting lists and have households that are ready to go. And I think it's reasonable that, you know, properties that require more work, such as a, you know, a full refurbishment of, of a house and perhaps, you know, energy re- um, retrofitting, an issue that I've spoken to you about many a time mm. in, in previous years, you know, that they, those upgrades will take longer. Um, are, are, are they going in, uh, though, and doing unnecessary work? Are, are, are they painting houses that don't need painting, for example? I mean, that, that's, that's possible. Um, I think it, what appears to be the case is there's a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach that, you know, they're maybe buying in bulk, say, I don't know, front doors or, 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 or various things. And uh, maybe in certain local authorities, they're holding on uh, until, holding off rather, until they get a kind of uh, a, a number of, of things coming in in bulk to, to fit out a, a given house or apartment. Um, now, I mean, I, I think the, the delays generally are uh, because there's lots of sections of a local authority that are involved in the reletting of a property. Mm. So, for example, an administrative delay at each stage can add significant time to the process. So, say somebody's on holidays in one section um, and therefore the paperwork doesn't get moved along or there's a delay then in getting the work done on the house as another job elsewhere in the local authority went overtime elsewhere, mm. followed by a wait for a final sign-off by, say, the estate management people, which you know, which might be delayed as the estate management check isn't back yet. And each delay 
with one property can cause delays elsewhere. Well, that sounds no unnecessarily bureaucratic, but I suppose on the other hand, we need to be realistic and each cog of the wheel has to be working. And if somebody's on holidays, it's going to slow things down or whatever, but up to a, a certain point. And the Irish Independent reporting on this this morning tells an inexplicable story, at least on the face of how that story is told about a house that Kildare County Council bought for €300,000 and has been sitting idle for two years. Yeah, and I, I don't know the detail underpinning that, that mm, one. As I say, on the face of how the story is told. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I guess the national average relay time is 29 weeks. Um, and to our mind, a reasonable relay time is between 8 and 10 weeks. So the challenge for local governments across the state is to ensure that the relet times are brought down because um, any delay is adding to the crisis. Any delay is uh, stopping a family or, or a person from moving into a, to a home that they've been on a waiting list that they require. Um, and clearly the systems within local authorities and certain local authorities in particular need to be improved. Um, I mean, I know in other jurisdictions they actually have an agency you take Scotland, for example, they have an agency called the Improvement Service and the, and the, um, the raison d'etre for the Improvement Service is to help improve these very things at local authority level so that it's not enough that you just you pr- produce a report, mm. that you actually follow through, that this agency, which is part of the government, then works directly with local authorities to improve things based on, you know, looking at these averages and these outliers and, and seeing where, you know, uh, local authorities that are, that, are, that are performing particularly poorly in terms of vacancy rates can reduce those vacancy rates, the systems and the processes that they need to kind of uh, um, apply and work with them to ensure that vacancy rates and indeed other aspects of local authority service are improved and res- much more responsive to the needs of families and communities across Ireland. And you're never going to bring this down to zero, that uh, you'll have no houses uh, that are, are vacant. There has to be turnarounds uh, and so on. But having said that, uh, it, it is a scandal to think to think that there's 3,600 vacant houses that are owned by the state, that are in the possession of county councils, uh, because that's enough to home the 10,000 homeless, isn't it? Yeah, and it, look, local authorities with longer relet times, they really need to look at the blocks in their system and perhaps learn from some of their counterparts who have reduced the relet times, such as Mayo, Longford, Cork City. These have all reduced their, their relet times by 30 weeks or more. So things have happened within those local authorities that have meant that they are more responsive. Um, they've cut those those waiting times, so their systems have changed. And you know the likes of the the Sligos and, and other local authorities who have these long relet times, they need to learn and compare notes um, to ensure that the the, the vacancy um, times are brought down to an absolute minimum. Mm. There, there is a necessary number of weeks. We as a, as a, I say, you know, eight to ten weeks we think is reasonable, um, you know, in terms of general kind of um, improvements and bringing, bringing houses back up to, to the level of um, uh, quality and standard that, that's required. Might take a little longer if there's a, a deeper energy efficiency retrofit, but really shouldn't be um, taking, you know, um, 29 weeks or, 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 or that kind of thing. That's that's really not reasonable. Mm. And not to be painting houses that don't need to be painted, I take it as well. I think, you know, there needs to be a pragmatic approach. Um, obviously, 
houses need to be of a quality standard. We talk about standards in the private rented sector and the rented sector generally uh, and are big advocates mm-hmm. for, for, for high standards and uh, good, reasonable, humane standards in, in the private rented sector. We're also conscious of the balance between that and supply, and supply is at an absolute uh, uh, pressured point now. Mm. Um, and that's why the local authorities need to uh, be, uh, especially those with the longer vacancy uh, uh, times they really need to ramp up their their processes. They need to improve their systems. They need to have all of their various departments talking to one another in a way that facilitates um, their their vacant units coming back into use, housing families, housing people at a time of crisis. Okay, we have to leave it there. But thank you indeed, as always. John Mark McCarthy, Chief Executive of Threshold, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, if you'd like to listen back to today's programme. Our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.